0: This is In Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of In Focus brings you in depth analysis and perspective from a different corner of our global network of experts. I'm Graham Griffiths, Associate Director and Head of Political Risk Analysis for the Middle East and North Africa. Since protests last October forced then-Prime Minister Saad al-Hariri to resign, Lebanon has suffered from a spiraling economic and political crisis. The country's economy had long relied on an unsustainable regime of financial engineering by the central bank to fund the country's twin fiscal and current account deficits. In the months following the October uprising, this scheme unraveled, causing the value of the currency to collapse and many Lebanese to lose the life savings they had entrusted to Lebanese banks. The government in March defaulted on its debt, and increasing inflation and unemployment have pushed thousands of Lebanese into poverty. In the face of this economic crisis, the government has been paralyzed. Hariri's successor, Hassan Diab, was supposed to lead a technocratic government capable of enacting reforms needed to unlock international aid. Instead, he found himself hamstrung by the country's vested political interests that benefit from state corruption and seek to maintain their patronage networks. Then came the explosion at the port of Beirut on August 4th. The blast caused by improperly stored ammonium nitrate was the result of a perfect storm of state incompetence, negligence, and corruption. Violent protests in its aftermath caused Diab and his cabinet to resign. The new Prime Minister-designate Mustafa Adib stepped down this weekend after failing to form a cabinet, which has once again become the object of tortured political wrangling between the country's power brokers, even as international pressure, including new U.S. sanctions on Shia movement Hezbollah and its allies, mounts. To discuss the ramifications of these ongoing political and economic crises, I'm joined by my colleagues Andrew Freeman and Ashley Halaby, who lead Control Risks Analysis of Lebanon. Andy, hi, thanks for joining me. Hi, Grant, thanks very much for having me. And Ashley, thank you for joining as well.
1: Hi, Grant. It's good to be here today.
0: Ashley, you've spent the last few months in Lebanon visiting for the first time since the deterioration of the political and economic situation. You were also in Beirut when the port explosion occurred. What have your impressions been during your time in the country?
1: So during my time in Lebanon, I saw a significant deterioration in day-to-day living of Lebanese people. So when I arrived in July, the only thing the country had under control that I could see was the coronavirus disease pandemic. So that was still minimal, and it resulted in only a few people wearing masks and taking the disease seriously. Among the things that were out of control at the time was utility services. So daily electricity outages were so prolonged that generators, which most Lebanese houses and offices own or pay service providers for, were unable to make up for the electricity cuts. I was between Beirut and Mount Lebanon at the time, and both areas had only six to ten hours of electricity per day. So that made it really difficult for me to work and to connect to internet or online meetings, and I imagine the same for businesses that operated from Lebanon. In terms of economic conditions, the most striking thing for me was how expensive everything became, from utility services to basic goods. The depreciation of the currency forced a large segment of the population into poverty, and many saw their standards of living deteriorate to the extent that they can't even purchase meat or chicken or medicine or any other imported products. So that was the situation in Beirut and in Lebanon before the port expulsion happened. So even then, I witnessed growing despair among the population, The most pressing concerns at the time before the explosion were the depreciation of the currency, the spike in COVID cases that started happening at the end of July. So the port explosion dealt the final blow, not only to Beirut's tourism sector or what was left of it, but also to the infrastructure and to any hope that the Lebanese people were hanging on to. Lebanese people have now completely lost hope that things will improve. And this is evident in the decrease in the large-scale peaceful protests that sought to make any change in the political system. Overall, though, my impressions of the country is that it is only headed to more despair and hardship because the political landscape remains unchanged and efforts to form a cabinet will continuously be restrained by a few political actors.
0: And it seems like despite what has happened, negotiations over the new cabinet have been dominated by the usual suspects, particularly Hezbollah and Emil. Have the developments of the past year at all loosened the grip these actors have on power?
1: So in terms of popularity among their supporters, these traditional parties, such as the Free Patriotic Movement, the Progressive Socialist Party, Amal, Hezbollah, like you mentioned, they have definitely lost some power there. As the economic conditions started to deteriorate and depreciation of the Lebanese pound pushed many into poverty, these conditions also affected their political party supporters. So in the past year or since the October 19 protests, Amal and Hezbollah specifically were met with unprecedented protests and their stronghold areas, such as in Bihar, Albaq, Nabatieh, or let's say Southern Beirut. These weren't really common or frequent. However, these political parties still retain some power among their supporters, many of whom depend on them for food baskets, for example, for medicine, for fuel, or for even jobs in the government or education opportunities. So these political parties still have some support bases, even though their popularity overall has diminished. In terms of their grip on the political landscape, especially within their current positions in the government and the parliament, many parties such as Free Patriotic Movement, Hezbollah and Amal, they still retain significant political power. And this is evident in the most recent examples to form a cabinet by the now former prime minister-designate Mustafa Adib, who he just mentioned, recently stepped down. The two parties, just to give some background on that, Hezbollah and Amal specifically, sought to name their own ministers in the new cabinet, especially for the Ministry of Finance. Adib, however, and other political parties were backed by French President Emmanuel Macron, who tried to pressure Lebanon to form a cabinet by 15 September. So even... President Michel Aoun, who is the leader of the Free Patriotic Movement and who is a strong Hezbollah ally, did not support these parties' bid for the finance ministry. And he stated in a speech last week that no sect should be automatically allocated a specific ministry, which shows that he doesn't really support them. However, despite all this opposition to these parties' requests, these Adi was still unable to surpass them. And he announced his failure to form a cabinet two days ago. So this one example shows us how much of a grip these two parties still have or other traditional parties as well. And uh, however, should elections take place in the future, parliamentary elections, the decrease in the popularity among the supporters might reduce their power. So we have yet to see that.
0: Turning now to you, Andy. As Ashley mentioned, we've seen some renewed engagement from the international community with Lebanon, ranging from French President Emmanuel Macron's visit to the US's recent decision to issue a new round of sanctions. Is the international community, in your opinion, united in its approach to Lebanon? And what can it realistically hope to achieve?
2: I mean, the short answer to that is no, the international community is not united. If you look at Lebanon and you look at levels of international engagement, both within the region, but you know more internationally as well, Lebanon has been a country and will remain a country where it is a proxy for regional and international foreign policy making. You just have to look at what Saudi Arabia and Iran have been doing with political parties and investing in the country for the last couple of years. The withdrawal of Syria in 2005 to kind of see Lebanon really as a theatre for proxy foreign policy objectives. From a US-France perspective, this is very much a carrot and a stick kind of scenario. France has been engaged regionally in Lebanon for a very long time now. If you look at the last two years, You've had France developing the CEDAR forum to donate 11 billion worth of dollars to invest in transport infrastructure, electricity, and and other ways to improve the, the country. And, and frankly, that still hasn't come to pass. Following the, the Beirut blast, Macron has visited Lebanon a number of times. The way that is viewed within Lebanon is is very different. There's a cynical play in, in some parts of the Lebanese public and political class because he's up for re-election. But also Lebanon is a very important country for France as well. And Macron is doing his best to try and get as much foreign aid donations and help into Lebanon as he can, but realistically is being hampered by the kind of things that Ashley spoke about in the last two questions. From a US perspective, you know, we can go into this in a bit more detail, but this is very much a a stick approach. The the number and the wide ranging sanctions that the US has put in place over the last couple of years, and even in the last couple of months, kind of demonstrates that the two are, are on very different pages. The only positive being that if the US and France can work together to build a coordinated response, France using its willingness to engage in the country and the US using sanctions as a means to push the Lebanese political class towards a resolution, then potentially that could be a way in which we can get more aid into the country and help Lebanon rebuild after that devastating blast. If we look at what's happened with aid and the influence of other actors in the last couple of years inside Lebanon, I think it's going to be very, very difficult for that to have any kind of realistic and useful effect, particularly over the next couple of months.
0: And if we return to the issue of US sanctions that have come up a couple times in the conversation so far... Can you tell us a bit more about them? Are they changing the landscape for companies hoping to do business in Lebanon? And can we expect more and broader sanctions down the line?
2: Well, I think firstly, they're not so much changing the landscape in Lebanon as much as they are making companies are more aware of the level of due diligence and compliance that they really have to do when looking at Lebanon as a a business opportunity. And by that, I mean that there have been US secondary sanctions in place in Lebanon since 2016, which have already made it very, very difficult for companies to invest in the country without doing very enhanced due diligence to ensure that they aren't working directly or indirectly with Hezbollah or Hezbollah's middlemen. So that's the first point. I think the second point is going back to the the stick issue with the U.S. Now sanctions are much more wide ranging now. If you look at what's happened over the past few months, we've had sanctions against Lebanese business people. We've had sanctions against Lebanese politicians and Lebanese politicians that aren't part of Hezbollah, crucially. These are politicians that are aligned with Hezbollah, but not part of the Hezbollah movement per se. Outside of Lebanon, you've also had the Syria Caesar Act, which is designed to prevent President Bashar al-Assad from receiving military or financial aid that could keep him in power. And if you look at the way that those sanctions are directed, a lot of that can also be used to target Hezbollah or indeed anyone that has any interests in Syria. And Lebanon being next door to that country makes that a very attractive Business opposition for getting goods into the country for reconstruction. So, there is a whole other range of sanctions there that companies need to be aware of when looking at Lebanon. Ashley, I'd like to come back to you.
0: Protests in recent months in the country have become more violent. There have been instances of communal violence, and crime in general is rising. How much worse do you think things will get, and what security threats do businesses operating in the country face?
1: Protests, sectarian clashes, and communal violence uh, have become more frequent and more violent over the past year, and these have included shootouts or even rocket-propelled grenades. They've also started to take place in areas that did not often witness communal violence or sectarian violence. For example, over this past month, there were clashes in Khalde which is in Mount Lebanon. There were clashes in Mirna Shalouhi, which is also Mount Lebanon, and then in Tariq which has often had sectarian clashes, but not as heavy as the ones that happened this past month. So these areas rarely witness such intense clashes, and this is because of the deterioration in law enforcement and because people do not really trust government institutions anymore, especially in the absence of a cabinet. Some people prefer to operate freely and take up arms to defend themselves and their interests. So I see things will get much worse if a cabinet is not formed, and businesses will continue to see this uptick in crime in unrest, including protests. And these will happen in areas like I mentioned above that are not necessarily hotspot areas for this type of incident. Anti-government protests as well will become more violent and people will continue to protest near government offices, will continue to protest and block roads across the country. So businesses will continue to see these roadblocks and incidental risks from nearby clashes. The security forces also have used a more violent approach in recent months. Other protests are also involving crock-throwing, rubber bullets, tear gas, and this has become more common. Businesses will start to see more frequent protests and more frequent security risks from these nearby clashes. In terms of crime, I see that rising as well because of the deterioration in economic conditions. Lots of people have lost their livelihood, and so they will opt to resort to crime to supplement that livelihood. So I do see businesses facing a lot of security risks from all these communal clashes, from sectarian clashes, and from crime and unrest, because the political stalemate is going to prolong these and economic collapse is also going to prolong that.
0: Thank you, Ashley. Now, Andy, against this quite pessimistic portrait we've painted of the domestic situation, we still have looming in the background, the confrontation or the possible confrontation between Hezbollah and Israel. Where do tensions between the two stand at the moment and have recent events changed either side's
2: calculation? Things are still tense as they have been for the last year or so. But I think it's important to remember as well that you know both Lebanon and Israel, if you look at what Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is going through, for example, with his corruption investigations, both have got their own internal domestic issues that that are concerning them at the moment. That's not to say the tensions aren't there. But from an Israeli perspective, at least, there are things much closer to home with Gaza, with the economy, with COVID restrictions, with those corruption investigations that I mentioned earlier that are more pressing. Inside Lebanon, of course, you know, you've got a situation that we've already spoken about in terms of the economy deteriorating, security deteriorating, infrastructure being decimated by the Beirut blast. It's not really in Israel's interests at the moment to confront Hezbollah at a time when Hezbollah is is clearly to the international community and to people inside Lebanon doing enough to destabilise the political and security environment on its own without Israeli help. That's not to say that Israel won't defend its interests, but I think where we will see Israeli action against Hezbollah will be in areas around Syria, you know, preemptive strikes in Syria have been a trend ever since that conflict started in 2011. And we've seen rocket strikes and airstrikes against senior Hezbollah members, against Iranian senior figures, and against weapons transfers into Lebanon for Hezbollah. So I think a conflict between the two is, is unlikely at the moment, but we do expect to see occasional clashes around the Sheba Farms area, especially when tensions increase in the run up to potential Israeli elections and as Hezbollah needs to distract. People inside Lebanon from, from what it's doing with politics in the country, there as well.
0: If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of In Focus, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe to our other podcasts as well, such as The Global Insight, our fortnightly panel discussion exploring the impact of the most pressing issues on global business. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we are helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.